A few weeks ago, I started a little study on my own just looking at uh, the events of the last week of Christ's life. I found a resource that uh, took the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it put them in chronological order so that you could follow the sequence of events as they occurred. It was really even significant to see a single event from the perspective of different authors as they reflected on what took place on that particular day. And for me, it was really significant to walk through that uh, time. And as I was going through it, I even thought to myself, boy, someday I want to be able to, to share this with my church family, to give them a picture of what impacted me as I walked through that time. And I thought this morning might be a good opportunity to do that, to consider the resurrection in the context of that final week. Now, I want to tell you as we do this, I want to give you the perspective of those who saw it firsthand, and specifically what it might have been to have been the Apostle John. Now, as I tell you that, I need to give you a little disclaimer. I'm not a theater guy. This is not a one-act play. But I did want to give you what I think is a firsthand account of what that week might have been like and how glorious that resurrection would have been. And so really what I've done is I've simply taken my journal and I have taken my reflections and I've crafted a story, a story that represents what that last week might have been like through the eyes of John the Apostle. And I hope that as we walk through this together that we'll all put ourselves in his shoes and when it's all said and done, maybe consider for ourselves what difference that truth should make in our lives if in fact we believe in that as well. So before we do that together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, as we come before you on this glorious day, we are grateful for that which we celebrate. Your resurrection, your victory over death, the payment paid, it is finished. The hope that we have in you to live life now, made new, old, gone, new, come. And to live also with the expectation that you will reign in your kingdom, has no end. And so, Father, may this give us encouragement, give us hope as we put our faith and trust in you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, it's Sunday, four days before the Passover, and the city of Jerusalem is already buzzing with excitement. People have been traveling for days to make their way into the holy city to celebrate this most important feast. The priests have taken that sacrificial lamb and set him aside to examine him, as was the custom of the law, to ensure that he was a worthy sacrifice without spot or blemish of any kind. It was at this time that Jesus himself would present himself to the people of Israel. For the very same purpose. At the time, we were staying at Bethany at the home of Mary and Martha, and yes, their brother Lazarus as well. <laughs> what used to be a quiet little place for us to get away for some solitude, some peace, has now become more like a tourist attraction. Almost every day, somebody new knocking at the door, wanting to see the man once dead, now raised to new life Lazarus. This ought to be real interesting when we all go into Jerusalem together. Well, interesting doesn't even begin to describe what happens next. 
As we prepared to go into Jerusalem, Jesus was very intentional about finding a donkey that he could ride upon as we entered into the city. And this was strange for all of us because normally we would just walk there on our own. We wondered if maybe he knew something that we didn't know. Was there something special about this day? I even thought about the prophet Zechariah and the promise that one day the Messiah would present himself as king to the people of Israel by riding into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. Not a royal stallion as you would expect for a normal king, but a beast of burden. Could this be that day? It certainly seemed to be the case as we neared the city gates and we saw hundreds and hundreds of people lining the streets. They were laying down palm branches and and singing and saying things out loud for all to hear. It was this, they were welcoming a king. They even said, Son of David, save us. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As I listened to those words, I could not imagine what was taking place. These people were putting their lives at risk. To claim Jesus as king over Caesar would invite the wrath of Rome. They had no tolerance for insurrection. Which is why the religious leaders in hearing all this commanded Jesus, tell the people to stop saying such things. And over the noise of the the crowd, Jesus turned to the Pharisees and said, if I told them to be silent, the rocks would cry out. This infuriated them all the more because they felt as if their control was what kept the peace. And by the looks of this crowd, they were losing that control. We made our way into the city. The crowd that had gathered had now joined Jesus into the temple courts. And he sat down to teach as was custom. Also, as we would often see, people would come forward. The sick, the lame, the blind. Jesus always stopped no matter what was going on and had compassion on those who came to him in need. He healed the sick, the blind, and the lame. You see, power was not his greatest passion. People. That was his greatest passion. As we witnessed these events, I began to wonder, is this the time that Jesus, the king, would establish his kingdom on earth? Were the people right when they proclaimed that our Savior has come? Is this the day of our salvation? But then Jesus made a statement that gave me pause. He said, even a seed must die before it bears fruit. And then he went on to say that I too must be lifted up in order to to draw all men to myself. This was more confusing than it was comforting at the time. As a Jew, we believe that Moses taught that when the Messiah came, that he would reign forever. That once he was here, he was here to stay. I guess Jesus saw the confused look on our face because he spoke to us and said, Remain close. Listen close. My light will shed light on God's truth. And so we listened all the more intently until we made our way back to Bethany that evening. Next morning, Monday, we rose up early to make our way to Jerusalem again. The city was once again 
moving and things were going on as everybody was making plans for that Passover festival. Almost overnight, the temple grounds had been turned into a marketplace. The merchants, having received permission from the religious leaders, were setting up tables to sell items to be used for sacrifice to the people in order to fulfill their religious obligations. And I'll admit, it was definitely a whole lot easier to buy a sacrifice right there at the temple than to carry that thing all the way from home where we lived. But that convenience did come with the price. These things were expensive. The merchants who sold them had to be raking in the money. And I can only assume that the religious leaders who gave them permission probably got their fair share as well. Despite all the normal commotion and things that were going on, Jesus seemed distracted this morning. It was as if he was unsettled, maybe even sad. And before I know it, he moved among the merchants. And walking down the rows of tables, he demanded that they make, take their business elsewhere. And if they refused, he would spread their coins against the floor, telling them that this is the house of prayer. It is the house of God. And you have made it a den of robbers. See, their bad business deals were a burden to the people. And their profits only promoted a compromise that removed the very heart of what it meant to worship God. We all looked at the religious leaders because we knew we were on their turf. How would they respond to what Jesus had just done? Well, they didn't say a word. They just turned and walked away, but the look on their face, face said it all. See, Jesus had crossed a line. His actions usurped their religious authority, and that was no small blow to their pride. There was an awkward moment of silence until Jesus called the crowd back together in order to explain what was on his mind. He turned to the book of Isaiah and showed us how the house of God was intended to be a house of prayer, a place of worship that was expressed in a posture of dependence where people put their loving trust in God's mercy and grace. Worship was a privilege, not an obligation. It was to be a lifestyle, not just something you do a few times during the year. His words really challenged my heart as well. I began to consider what he said in my own life and wondered, was I just going through the motions? Was I at risk at missing something that God had intended because my focus is on me? It was an important question, and I would go to sleep that night thinking about it. Wednesday, the next day, was a quiet day. Almost too quiet. We made our way into Jerusalem as we normally did. And as usual, the people gathered to hear Jesus teach. And as usual, they hung on every word he had to say. But, but I was distracted. I was confused because something just didn't seem right. Something didn't feel right. And then I realized what it was. There were no religious leaders in the audience as there had been every other day. They were gone. Not a single one of them was there. What I would later learn to be the case is that they were meeting secretly behind closed doors. Jesus had crossed the line. And they had decided among themselves that 
once the Passover was over and the people had left, that they would take care of this issue on their own. As the high priest Caiaphas would reason, it's better for one man to die on behalf of the people. We're only doing this to protect them. Remember, our job is to keep the peace. Even though I wasn't aware of those events at the time, I still went to bed feeling unsettled that night. I I knew something wasn't right. But I was hopeful that tomorrow, when we celebrated the Passover together, that everything would be okay. I went to bed that night with that hope. Well, it's Thursday. Passover will begin at nightfall. And so everyone is working to make sure all the details of that meal is that they're in place. The Old Testament law instructs us to eat Passover inside the city limits, so we were all wondering where we would be meeting together this year. And then Jesus called Peter and I to the side and explained to us that he'd already made arrangements on our behalf. He instructed us to go into the city and that we would find a man carrying a jar of water and he would tell us where to go. Of course, we were both wondering how would he know that we were going to find this man, but then we realized this was a chore usually done by a woman, and so if we saw this man, we would know it when we saw him. And sure enough, we walked right to him. And he told us about the room of his house, an upper room that had been set aside for Jesus to celebrate the Passover meal with his disciples. We made sure everything was in place and then waited for everyone to arrive. As I'd hoped, when the entrance of Jesus and the fellow disciples came, it immediately put our mind at ease. Our hearts felt satisfied to be together. There's something about sharing a meal with one another that just makes you feel like family. As was custom, Jesus reclined at the center of the table. I sat on his right and Judas on his left. He took the unleavened bread, and as was custom, he reminded us how this bread was to represent God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. And each time, we are to be reminded of that deliverance. And then he took the bread, broke it, and handed it to us, and then he says this. This bread is my body, which will be delivered up for you. And then he took the cup. He reminded us that this cup is to represent the promise that God would redeem his people with an outstretched hand. And then he said, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. As we passed the cup around, everyone was silent. Why would Jesus be talking about his death when we fully expected that he would be reigning as our king? Not only that, Jesus said that someone who would eat of, or drink of this cup would, would in fact betray him. This, of course, set off a, a firestorm of conversation of who this might be. Everyone denied it was them. I don't know that I would have expected anything any different. In order to prove our loyalty to Jesus, we justified our innocence by arguing as to who would be the greatest in his kingdom. Not only would we not betray him, we were all convinced that we would reign with him in that kingdom we expected him to establish. In the midst of the fury of this discussion, no one noticed that Jesus had slipped away 
and was girding himself with a towel. Before we know it, he had taken a basin and a jar of water. He walked back to us, and we were all silent in shame. He would do for us what we should have been doing for him. I'll never forget that day and what it taught me about what it means to love one another. To consider the needs of others is more important than our own. For the remainder of the evening, Jesus would speak very personally to us. He would encourage us to trust Him, to believe in His Word, to follow His example. He was honest about the persecution that would come in the days ahead, but He promised that that He would send a, a helper to protect us and to equip us for the task. This was beginning to feel more like Jesus was preparing us for a mission than just giving us another lesson on life. I know I could sense the very purposeful intention of his words. As it continued, it became very clear that Jesus was preparing us for his departure. In fact, he even said, where I am going, you cannot come. But then he said, don't worry, be patient, I will prepare a place for you. Where where was Jesus going? And why couldn't we come? What what was this place he was going to prepare? And, And who is this helper? Before the evening was over, Jesus said a prayer that I will never forget. As he went before God on our behalf, I listened to him speak the most intimate and loving words that ever came out of his mouth. He prayed for our faithfulness. He prayed for our unity. He prayed for our protection from the evil one. He even prayed for those who would come after us and and share in that same faith and trust that we have in him. And then, as we all got up to leave, Jesus looked at us in the eyes and he said, before this night is over, you will be scattered because of me. And then in the same breath, he promised his grace and forgiveness. I could not imagine how the deep bond of our fellowship could change that quickly. In fact, I think all of us felt that we were more connected and close to one another in that moment than we had ever been. How in the world could that change? When we left the upper room, we walked in silence to the Garden of Gethsemane. When we arrived, Jesus asked Peter and James and I to join him as he would go and have some time in prayer. As we continued to walk together, Jesus explained the the heaviness of his heart. In pure authenticity, he asked us to, to remain close, to be alert. As we sat nearby, we could hear the emotion of his prayer, the heartfelt words, the weight of the world on his shoulders. He spoke through tears as he surrendered his will to the will of God, whatever that will might be. I sat listening, trying to imagine all the possible scenarios of what could possibly be on his mind. And in that exhaustion of emotion, I fell asleep. 
Jesus woke me with a gentle embrace, and instead of condemning me, he comforted me and reminded me how important it was to stay alert from the enemy's distraction. It was probably midnight by now, and the quiet of the darkness had put us all to sleep (laughs) until that silence was soon broken by the sound of footsteps. And not just a few footsteps. I mean, it sounded like an an army. Well, because it was an army. (laughs) Weapons and all. And leading this battalion of soldiers was one of our very own. It was Judas. He greeted Jesus with a kiss of betrayal, and in the blink of an eye, they had bound him and taken him away. We all stood paralyzed in fear. And then... We scattered. Everyone fled for safety. Peter and I were determined to follow Jesus wherever they were to take him. They took him first to Anna's house. He was the former high priest, but still very much a man of influence behind the scenes. In fact, I think this probably was his idea all along. When he questioned Jesus about his attentions, Jesus was very clear about having never done anything in secret, but everything out in the public for all to see. Unlike this arrest, which was hidden by the cloak of darkness, in conflict with every single aspect of the Jewish rule of law. Knowing this, Jesus looked at Annas and said, perhaps you are the one who has something to hide. We flinched as one of the soldiers hit Jesus in the face, demanding that he respect Annas. Time was of the essence, and so they shuffled him off to Caiaphas' house. He is the acting high priest, and when we arrived and stood in the shadows, we could see that they had already gathered a quorum of religious leaders together. They wanted to make sure that they had the, the right men to make the right judgment but this wasn't even close to being a fair trial in fact they couldn't even get two witnesses to agree upon the same story because that's what happens when a witness is making up the story as they go this is a charade but through it all jesus just stood silent he didn't protest he didn't argue he just listened Seeing they were going nowhere fast, Caiaphas walked up to Jesus and with very serious intention said, In God's name, tell me the truth. Are you the Messiah and do you claim to be equal with God? Jesus said, I am. And with that, even Peter and I drew a deep breath. We believed he was a Messiah. But clearly, our king is no longer in control. Upon hearing these words, Caiaphas tore his clothes and demanded that Jesus be put to death for blasphemy. The mob responded by spitting at Jesus, striking him with blows that brought him to his knees. They mocked him for such a ridiculous claim. And everybody moved quickly so that the full council of the Sanhedrin could be gathered together to pass what was needed to be the judgment, death by crucifixion. They had to move fast in order to make this judgment official before the people of the city took notice as to what was going on. 
And so just before sunrise, having received the news, all the religious leaders moved into the Sanhedrin, arriving only to give their nod of approval. Jesus was bound and taken away. They moved quickly to the palace of Herod where Pilate was staying. He was the only one who could legally proclaim a judgment of death. The Jews could not do that on their own. And so when Pilate was there, he, he asked Jesus if, if he was, in fact, the king of the Jews, as they had claimed. Jesus explained that he was not here to lead a revolt. That there would be no army that would establish his reign. Yes, he was a king, but not of this world. This made no sense to Pilate. And to be real honest, it didn't make a lot of sense to me either. If this earth is not his kingdom, then where will Jesus reign? Does this have anything to do with the place that he said that he would prepare for us? I knew that Pilate was between a rock and a hard place. His friend, the man who had appointed him to this role as governor, had just recently been executed for treason. And so all eyes were on Pilate to see if he would be a traitor as well. In an effort to avoid this scrutiny, Pilate shuffled Jesus to Herod, hoping that he would make this, this decision instead of him. Herod was intrigued by Jesus. He was glad to see him, but he could care less what they did with him. He was only interested to be entertained, to see if Jesus might do some miraculous sign for him. But when Jesus would not, he made amusement for himself. He wrapped him in a purple robe put a crown of thorns upon his head, and then told his soldiers to beat him, to mock him, and to bow to him as king. All the religious leaders stood and laughed. Jesus was then escorted back to Pilate as the religious leaders began to circulate through the city to spread the rumors that Jesus had been found to be a fraud. He'd been given the opportunity to, to demonstrate his power, and he couldn't do it. It was all an illusion. Jesus was a fraud. And the people had been played the fool. Well, they stirred up enough anger that there was a group of people, a, a large group, that had now gathered outside of the gates of the palace. Pilate paced inside as he considered his decision, but he decided that he only had one option. Remember, his friend had been executed for treason, and now his life was on the line. And he could not let a man claiming to be king go free, no matter how innocent that man might be. So he presented a beaten and bloody Jesus to the angry crowd, and they were not about to let a man who had been so humiliated represent them as king if he couldn't stand up to the romans then what good would he be to them and so they shouted out the verdict crucify him and i wept when i heard those words they beat him they mocked him and then they nailed him to a cross he hung there for six long hours until finally, he said in a loud voice, it is finished. 
And then I watched him die. The pain in my heart was only slightly relieved by the news that his body would not be left hanging there through the Sabbath. I learned that a tomb had been purchased and that there were two men who had been given approval to take the body of Jesus and to place him there. One of those men was a wealthy man and he had actually given up his own personal tomb and provided a burial that was, yes, fit for a king. In fear that his body might be stolen, they placed guards around that tomb, sealed it shut to make sure that no robbers would come and take that body away. It's Saturday now, the Sabbath, and the once bustling city is now mostly silent. I don't think I slept much that night. It was like a bad dream that just didn't make any sense to me. And yet, Jesus said he was going away. He said that we couldn't go where he was going. He, he said that we would scatter and be persecuted, and all that had been proven to be true. But what do we do now? Where do we go from here? I was emotionally exhausted again, running through all the possible scenarios, and, and once again I fell asleep until I was awakened early the next morning. I heard a knock on the door. Actually, it was more like they were knocking the door down. <laughs> they were beating on it so loud. I came to the door. It was Peter and Mary and some others, and they were all talking over each other. I, I couldn't understand a word they were saying until someone said, He's alive. It was Mary. She had been to the tomb early that morning to anoint the body of Jesus, and, and in that she realized that the, the stone had been rolled away. The soldiers were gone. The tomb was empty. Well, she was petrified in fear that, that somebody had taken the body away. Until an angel visited her and explained to her that Jesus was alive. That he had risen from the grave. I had to see it for myself. So Peter and I ran as fast as we could to the gravesite. And when we arrived, Peter stood outside. But I went straight in there, and it was exactly as she described. All the burial clothes, as if they had been wrapped around the body, still lay there. But the body was gone. When I saw, I believed. Rumors began to spread, and, and many of the disciples didn't believe. We, we gathered everybody together, and we locked ourselves into a room because we knew that if the religious leaders thought that the body had been stolen, we would be the first on the suspect list. As we talked, everybody shared their experience. Some had been to the tomb and seen that it was empty. Some had been visited by angels. There were actually two disciples that were walking to Emmaus, not to realizing that, that Jesus was walking with them. And he had described to them how all of the Old Testament law pointed to him as the promised Messiah. We were excited. We were afraid. And then he appeared. Jesus, our king in, in, in bodily form right there in front of us. We couldn't believe what we were seeing. He saw that we were confused, even afraid. And so he invited us to, to touch him. To see that it was him. It was his body. It wasn't a ghost. And over the next 40 days, he appeared to a multitude of people with miraculous signs and teachings about his kingdom. 
we learn that Jesus would not rule on this earth. That he would rule from the throne of heaven in unity with God through the power of the Holy Spirit. This was not what we expected at all. This was even better. Our king rules and reigns in the hearts of his people. And his kingdom will have no end. In that day, we realized our lives would never be the same. The king has returned. The prophecies fulfilled. The years of longing are over. The king has returned. And now all will be made right. Amidst shouts of praise and tears of joy, the pleading for justice, the cries for our enemies' defeat. The king has returned. The king who was driven from his land as an infant, who spent his first years as a refugee, who understands pain and suffering. But this king is not who we were looking for. This king brings justice, not over our enemies, but in the midst of our enemies. He brings peace, not in our land, the answer to the prayer we did not know we were praying. The king has returned. Long live the king. The king is dead. The hand that once held a branch now gripped a hammer. dead. This king of kings who embraced the very nature of a servant. This prince of peace broken for us. This commander of angels surrendered to a cross. This king joins us in our suffering, empathizes in our weakness, and he calls us to die with him to lay down our lives, to live in surrender, that we may be fully alive. The king is dead. Long live the king. But this king is not gone forever. The story has not ended. There is There's a third day, and on that third day, the king will strip death of its power and extinguish the sting of Hades. This king is not defeated. This king is not destroyed. This king is the resurrection. He is the life. He is the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. The king has returned, leaving death behind.
destroying hate, inviting us all to live in his victory, in his kingdom, in his it's important for us to ask ourselves if that is true what difference should it make in our lives today if Jesus is our king does he rule and reign in our hearts should we have just an ordinary life just trying to get by is that what it should look like should we allow the the burdens of this world to to overwhelm us as if it was ours alone to carry Should we at any time allow the the power of sin, destroyed at the cross, ever to rule in our life again? Well, if Jesus is alive, then every day should be a celebration of his resurrection. If Jesus reigns in our heart, then every day should be an experience of his power at work within us. If Jesus has risen, then every day, We should live with the hopeful expectation of his promised return. As I've thought through this and put myself into the shoes of the disciples, one of the questions I had to ask myself is if their life and having had that experience would never be the same again, forever changed, then why would it be any different for me if I believe it is true as well? For I have been raised up to walk in newness of life. The power of God's resurrection resides within me and within you as you put your faith and trust in Him. Old things have gone. New things have come. It should never be the same again because our King is alive. and He's alive in the hearts of those who love Him and who follow Him. We are His kingdom, a kingdom of priests who were called to share the good news of what he accomplished on the cross and validated in the resurrection. Our king is alive. And we have reason to celebrate and live differently because of it. I pray like the disciples that we would say, our lives will never be the same. Let me pray for you. What a glorious day to celebrate the truth of the hope that we have in you, our risen King, our Savior, the one who gave his life on our behalf, paid the penalty for our sins so that we might experience, because of his love and grace towards us, the hope of a relationship with him, not just now, but for all eternity. So, Father, we pray that As we celebrate your resurrection, we would be reminded of that hope that is alive. That it is alive and well within your people who are called by your name to carry out your purpose to the uttermost parts of the earth. May people see the evidence of the truth that you have been raised, 
because of the evidence of truth of having been walking in a newness of life through people who put their trust in you. May we be the evidence of your resurrection through our love for one another and our obedience and love for you. It's in Christ's name, our risen Lord, that we say, Amen. Have a glorious day.